pray with me? Father in heaven, I, I pray we believe that. I pray that what we've just sung really reflects uh, the intentions, the desires, the affections of our hearts. I pray now that we can hear that very same message uh, from the scripture. That you would open our minds, hearts, very souls to embrace truth and be comforted by it. We demand of you no more than what you tell us, but that what you tell us will be sufficient to encourage us. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to Hebrews in chapter 12, please. Hebrews in chapter 12. I want to read verses 3 through 11. Hebrews in chapter 12, please. Hear the word of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves... And chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruits of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, the author of Hebrews is laying out for us this running of this race. He wants for us to be able to run with endurance the race that is set before us, even when it's most difficult to run. So so this passage, I'll tell you, is as tough as they get. Now remember that he's talking to them about running this race, and that is a metaphor for living by faith. And he's saying that we're to run this race uh, with endurance. So it's not a sprint. It's an ultra marathon, but it comes equipped with hurdles and obstacles in the midst of all that as well. And we're to continue to run it. And he wants us to run it uh, with endurance. Now, he's given us a lot of great races in chapter 11. He's told us a lot of great races in chapter 11. But none of those races were run without a measure of sacrifice and pain, some much more than others. And so even in the midst of that sacrifice and pain, what he's about to lay out for us is how we're to run this race and how we're to continue uh, to live uh, by faith. And he comes to this point because of what we read in verse 3. He says, Consider him, and the him there is Jesus, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You see, he's looking at this community of people and he's seeing some who are growing weary and faint-hearted. That is, living by faith is a very difficult and discouraging thing for them. And the reason that this is so dangerous is because he knows that if we become too weary, too faint-hearted, too discouraged, we won't run. And if we don't run, we won't finish. And if we don't finish, we won't get the prize. And so what he's concerned for them is the same thing he's been concerned about all the time. Concerned for them, concerned for us, really, by the Holy Spirit, is that we continue to run and we don't stop enduring this race 
So that's his concern. Now, we see that the cause of this potential weariness for them, in verse 3, it may well be like it was with Jesus. That is, this hostility from sinners. He, he compares their situation with the situation with Jesus. He says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He's saying, Look at Jesus. Uh, he experienced great suffering at the hands of sinners, which we know he did. All his life, most especially we see it at the cross. Most especially we see it the hours before the cross. We see it as he's being crucified, this hostility. And he said, now look at Jesus. On the one hand, he's saying to them, you haven't suffered like Jesus had. I mean, that just is a given. None of us have suffered, has suffered like Jesus has suffered. Um, but he's saying, look to him. Uh, endure as he endured. Verse 4 in your struggle against sin, he says, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And that's a wonderful thing. It's that word yet that is troubling. You see, they've certainly experienced a measure of persecution. We read in chapter 10 about how some were arrested and their property plundered and all of that. But now he said, look to Jesus, but, but you haven't yet resisted in your struggle against sin uh, to the shedding of blood. Not, not yet, but... But understand that isn't out of the realm of possibility. That isn't out of the question. It still may happen. And so you can imagine the kind of weariness that comes from, from being closer to that than you and I are. I mean, they've already seen some of their friends arrested. Some of them may have been arrested themselves. They've already realized that their, their property has been plundered. You know, when they go home at night, uh, their toaster isn't there and their, you know, their, their car isn't there and their, their, their TV isn't there and whatever it is that they possessed isn't there. And that's a great recognition that I'm that close from further persecution. They're that close into the life of my family. So think about going to bed with that on your mind, you see. So he's saying, and it could even get worse than this, even yet resisted to the shedding of blood. And so the weariness, the discouragement that can come uh, in the midst uh, of that, we see in verse 11, he says, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. So you get a sense that many of them are living in pain. Not in the pleasantness of life, but in the, in the pain of, of that. You might ask, well, why would this make them grow weary? Well, I think we know why. While we may not be in the same situation as they, in our struggle against sin, we understand that the effects of sin in the context of life can make us quite weary in the race and in the run. We know that sin wreaks havoc in relationships that our selfishness and our envy and our jealousy and our misunderstandings and all those kinds of things that take place in relationships uh, wreak havoc on them and, and, and make us weary in the midst of those kinds of, of, of relationships. We realize that anxiety and fear because of the effects of sin in life uh, make life weary and we worry. And we have reason to worry, don't we? I mean, we have reason to worry about our careers because we see others fail and, and careers come to ruin in other people's lives and unemployment. We worry about our finances because of what we see happen in the lives of other people. We, we worry about our health because of what we see happen around us, what may even be happening to us. We worry about those we love because we can lose them, because we see what happens in the world around us and all of that. And, and, and we know that that's a struggle against the effects of sin. And it becomes wearying to live like that, to worry like that. We see the distress that takes place in the world. We wonder, how can we live in a world like this? I mean, just this week, a seventh grade teacher beat up the twelfth grade teacher of her daughter in the front of all the kids. I mean, that happened in the good old U.S. of A. I mean, just this week, a pipeline exploded in, in Nicaragua and killed 200 people. Uh, there's fighting in Somalia where 130 at least people have been killed. 280 people have been wounded. That happens every day. You know the headlines. You read this stuff. And don't you begin to wonder after a while, how can we live in the context of a world like this? I mean, we may have built fences around our own lives to some degree, but we have to peer into this and we realize this is really going on. This really happens in the world in which we live. And it creates a weariness in us, a wondering, can I continue to live and to persevere and to run this race here that it's been set before me by God. It may well be very normal to become weary. And, and that's not even to mention 
just the, the personal struggle we have with our own sinfulness and how wearying that gets over and over and over again. These same sins keep besetting us and coming into our lives and we keep struggling with them and trying to lay them aside and repent of them and turn away from them and, and then tomorrow the same kind of thing happens and, and it just gets weary. You just want to be done with all of that. And then, of course, the potential threat always of any external hostility that can come towards us just because we name the name of Christ, just because we're followers of Christ. Very normal uh, to become weary. We wonder, is anybody really minding this store? That was what gave birth to Daniel Shore's comment, this commentator for NPR for decades after Hurricane Katrina said something to the effect of this, if this is evidence of intelligent design, then the designer owes us an apology. And while we may get angry at a statement like that, the truth of the matter is, we get a sense about where that's coming from, what that looks like in the context of life. We read in the Bible that Jesus is the king. We wonder, is he really ruling when we see what we see? We read that he's our good shepherd, but we wonder, is he really nurturing when we see what we see? Uh, we read that God is our Father. And he says that if your fathers who are evil know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more will our Father in heaven give good gifts to us? And yet, is that what we, is that what we see? During Holy Week this past month, I was meditating in my own little life about why it is that it was so seemed so easy to praise Jesus on Palm Sunday, that Sunday that begins Holy Week. Well, it seemed that it was so easy for people in Jesus' day to praise him on that day and yet impossible for them to stand by him on that very next Thursday night, Friday. And I began to wonder about that. And I'm sure it's quite a complicated answer, but, but I think it's at least this that it's easy to stand by Jesus. It's easy to trust him. It's easy to, 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 to really have faith in him and to believe in him and to stand for him when he looks like a king. But very difficult when he, when he doesn't. When he entered into Jerusalem on that day, he really looked like a king. I mean, he was coming in on a new cult just like a king would, coming announcing peace. People were throwing their coats down and palm branches and cheering and shouting. And he looked just like a king. Who wouldn't side with him on a day like that? When then Thursday night... When the false accusations started to come and some of them began to ring true for whatever reason in the minds of people and he didn't answer them. And as they spat upon him, as they beat him, and as they flogged him, and as some in the crowd began to murmur, crucify him, and, and, the, and, and that began to just capture everybody's imagination and attention, and all of that started to happen, it was very difficult at that point in time to stand by him because he didn't look much like the ruler, the sovereign God of all that is. In a moment like that, it's, it's harder to run with him. You see, it's easy to run on the race that he set before us when he looks like a king, and he looks like a king when everything looks to us like it should look to us if he were really ruling and reigning. But when it doesn't, it's easy to run that race when, when, when he's our good shepherd and he looks like our good shepherd when we feel cared for. But when we don't, it can become weary to run with him. And it's easy to run that race that God sets before us when we know him to be our heavenly father who cares for us. But if it doesn't look like that, then it's more difficult for us to run with him. You get the sense that for these people, and you get the sense, because we know this in the context of our own lives, it doesn't always look like Jesus is ruling and reigning. It doesn't always look like he's our good shepherd. It doesn't look like he's our heavenly father who cares for us. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, all right, I know that. And I want you to live by faith. And in wanting to live by faith, I want to give you encouragement so you'll continue to run this race. So the question for us this morning is what's he say? What's he say to us 
that is to encourage us to continue to run the race. So I want you to sort of increase or, or create in you, if it doesn't already exist, an expectancy, an expectancy from God. that He's going to give to you what you need to know and receive in order to continue to run this race and not be weary. That should be your expectation as you come to a passage like this. If you're reading this in your quiet time, what should be your expectation is, all right, he's going to tell me something that will enable me to not be weary. So I won't be discouraged. That's what this is about. I'll trust this is a means of grace to me. So I'm going to expect that to take place. Now, what is necessary is that we must be comforted by it. We must take this word from God and allow it to comfort us. That is, we must believe it. And as we believe it, it will comfort us. But if we demand from God an account of himself that's more than what he gives here, there will be nothing to comfort us. Does that make sense to you? I mean, that's, that's the seriousness of the word of God. This is what he gives to us. If we refuse to receive it, if we refuse to accept it, if we refuse to be comforted by it, there is no other comfort. If we demand from God that he gives an account of himself more than he gives to us in the scripture, then there is no comfort to us. We need to train our minds. What's that hymn? Tune my heart to sing your grace. That's how it goes. Blessed assurance. No, is that, no, no, no. Come thou fount of every blessing. I knew you'd know that, Jesse. Thank you. <laughs> and that's what you see. That's what we're after. We're after God to tune our hearts so that what he says comforts us. Tune, you see, that's the danger. We read stuff in the scripture. And we go, I don't like that. I'm not going to allow that to come. I want a different explanation. I want another way. And if there isn't a different explanation, and if there isn't another way, then there is no way to be comforted. And you've got to believe, we've got to believe, don't we, that if there is a different way and there is another thing to say, he would have said it. He wouldn't be holding this from us. He says, I I don't want you to be weary, so let me tell you this. Why is he telling us this? So we won't be weary. So this is what we must do. And that isn't easy. And he knows that because he's, he's writing to people who don't want to run. He's writing to people who are finding the running very difficult. He's writing to people who are tripping up on all kinds of things. And you know what that feels like. So he's writing to us. We're no different. We're no strangers to what they know. And so we need to receive this. So we need to expect this. But to expect this, we need to pray that God will tune our hearts. He'll he'll enable us to receive this and to be content with what he tells us and to grab a hold of that, be encouraged by it so we can run. All right? So here we go. This won't be easy for me and maybe not for you, but listen, it will help us. First and foremost, he says, I want you to realize that this, we need to put our suffering the difficulty of running, the hostility, we need to put all of that in perspective. So again, verse 3 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He's saying, listen, this happened to Jesus. And that isn't a cop-out. That's a comfort. Because he's saying, listen, if this kind of thing happened to Jesus, then you know that this kind of thing happens to people that God loves. Because Jesus was his beloved son in whom he was well pleased. Jesus deserved none of this. But still, he got it. He had to endure a very painful race. That's why we read in our profession of faith from Isaiah 53 about Jesus this morning, that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And it wasn't that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief because his father did not love him. The very opposite was true. And so we say, I want to put this in perspective. This happened to Jesus. This will happen to you. In fact, Jesus 
as in all things, is our example. Of course, Jesus is more than our example. He's our Savior, but he's not less than our example. Right? We mustn't miss that point. He's more than our example. He's our Savior. We need what he did for us. But he's also an example to us as we live. For instance, 1 Peter in chapter 2 and verse 19. Peter is in the context of telling a group of slaves who are suffering unjustly how they're to respond to this injustice. And it appears to be an injustice that they can't escape. I mean, it's there for them. They, they can't get out of it. You have a feeling that if they could get their freedom, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that Peter would say, get your freedom, get out of this situation. But they can't. They're suffering unjustly. They're suffering at the hand of an unjust master. And so verse uh, uh, 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when... Mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Right? So it's a gracious thing, he says. This is a good thing. If you can do that. Verse 20. But what credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it and endure? For you do good and suffer for it you endure. That is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. That is. This is the race that God has set out before you. He's saying this to a group of slaves who probably have been beaten unjustly and who can't get out of that situation. He isn't telling them to hate their master. He isn't telling them to subvert their master. He's saying that you've been called to this, that this is the race that God has set out before you. Okay? For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This happened to Jesus, he's saying. The very same thing. This doesn't mean that God isn't sovereign and ruling and reigning. He is. It doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. He does. Because all of these things happened to Jesus, over whom he ruled and reigned, and whom he loved. That's his very beloved son. So Jesus sets this as an example for us. Verse 22, so follow it. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He trusted his heavenly father. Now any onlooker onto that situation would say he hasn't got a heavenly father who cares for him. But Jesus wasn't living by sight. He was living by faith. He was living by truth. He was living by what he knew about God. And so he trusted his heavenly father, even though it may not have felt like he had a heavenly father. And he's saying these slaves to do the very same thing. Right? Why? Because it happened to Jesus. So don't think because it's happening to you that God doesn't love you. And that is to comfort us. That's to say that this isn't because he doesn't love you. It isn't because he isn't ruling and reigning. And then notice, he relates this suffering of theirs to discipline. Uh, And the discipline uh, of a heavenly father. Now, when we think of discipline, we, we think of disciplining a child generally. That comes to mind. So we think of spanking. We think of timeouts. Uh, we think of grounding. We think of, of correcting because they've done something wrong. Now, that certainly is a part of discipline, but that isn't the guts of discipline. That isn't the primary understanding of the word discipline. The word discipline really means education, instruction, a training. Um, for instance, we use it like this. You could ask a student, for instance, what is your major? Or you could ask a student, what is your discipline? Now, if you ask them, what is your discipline, unless they were from about 1950, they might not understand what you're trying to say, but they should, uh, because the word simply means, in what are you being instructed? In what are you being trained? That's your discipline. That's your area of study. And their professor is is their discipler. He's their teacher. He's their discipler. And so he disciplines them, or she disciplines them, by lectures, instruction, by guiding their reading, 
through discussions and by way of examinations. That's the disciplinary process in uh, a university. That doesn't mean anybody's being spanked. It doesn't mean anybody's being put in time out, though maybe that would help us, even at the university level. I don't know. But, um, but the point is you're learning. That's what it's all about. And so he's saying, he's relating our suffering to being disciplined. That is, our suffering to being trained. Notice how he puts it in verse 11. He said, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Okay? Not those who have been punished through it, but those who have been trained by it. So he's saying, listen, I know this is going to be difficult for you to understand and to receive, but, but suffering is God's training of us. Now that's kind of scary. It's scary because when we normally think of one who disciplines us, we kind of know the boundaries, right? Like if you're a child and you know your parents, you kind of know the boundaries. But if your parents are abusive, that's very scary because you don't know what that'll lead to, right? So that makes you afraid. If you're in a class and you know your professor's how he disciplines, how he grades, if you will, uh, you can understand that and live with you. There's some control, some boundaries there. But, but, but if he's an unreasonable or she's an unreasonable professor, then that's, that's scary to you. And so this kind of thing requires great trust in God, doesn't it? Because he's talking about training us through suffering. And the question is, can we trust him with that? I mean, through suffering, we know what suffering means. And we've seen it throughout history. We've seen it in the context of our lives. We know that it runs the gambit all the way from persecution under horrible kinds of death, all the way to the suffering that we experience in the context of life because we live in a fallen world, a sinful world, where a world where sin exists. So we understand grief and death and we understand disease and we understand broken relationships and we understand war and we understand all that hostility. We know what that means and we know that suffering. And, and, and the author of Hebrews is saying, now listen, I want, to, I want to relate suffering to God training you. And I want you first to understand that this means, that is, when he trains you by way of suffering, that this means that he's your father and that he loves you. Notice verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens or chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Now, the logic there, of course, is impeccable. Fathers are charged with the training of their children. Strictly, fathers are not charged with the training of somebody else's children. Right? You can always tell when there's a group of kids running through the church and one dad walking towards them. And if those kids are misbehaving, how can you tell whose father? Because he'll yell at his own kid at least first, right? Because that's what you're thinking about. That's your, you know, when all the kids in Lawrence bring their report cards home. I only yell at one kid at a time, right? Just, just my own, because that's what I'm charged with. You see, that's, I'm to, we're to discipline them. Karen's like, you never did that, I did that. Go with me on this, honey. Um, <laughs> you get the point. I mean, that's the logic of it. The difficulty of it, of course, is he's my Heavenly Father, and I'm suffering. How can he be related to this? He said, well, well first of all, don't go there yet. What I first want you to see is that I have in mind that this is going to train you. And you say, but everybody suffers, not just the children of God. I mean, everybody suffers. Read the paper. Everybody suffers. Nobody misses suffering. Everybody suffers. And he said, I know. But not everybody's trained by it. Not everybody's mine. For those who belong to God through Christ, 
that is his children. Remember, not everybody's a child of God. When you hear those general expressions in political rallies that we're all children of God, understand they're wrong. But what they're trying to say is that God is our creator, and that would be right. But when we're talking about the personal fatherhood of God, the scripture says to those who believed him, to those who received those who received him, to those who believed in his name, to those very ones, he gave the right, that is the authority, to be called children of God. Those are the ones he gave birth certificates to. Those are the ones that you say, see, I'm a child of God. He, I have the authority to take his name for myself. I have the right to do that because I've been born of his spirit. And so he's talking to those. Now, for those who don't belong to him, this suffering is simply... I say this gently, I hope. It's simply a precursor to judgment. That's all it is. It's simply a precursor. It's a warning shot, if you will, if I could say that crassly. It's a precursor to judgment. For those who belong to him, this isn't punishment for sin. Jesus has taken that. This is redemptive. This is to repair This is to restore. This is to instruct. This is to train. Right? And so, that's the difference. And the training, he says, is holiness. Notice, in verse, middle of verse 9, he says, Shall we not much more be subject to this Father's of spirits and lived? For they disciplined us, that is, our earthly fathers, for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. You see, what he wants out of us, that what is designed for us is is that we be holy. That's the training that is going to come. And this training in holiness is no abstract concept. This is real. This is the very character of Christ being formed in us. The famous verse that we all use and misuse, Romans 8, 28, for God causes all things together to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The good that God causes all things to work together for is our holiness. That is, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. Read verse 29 and 30. We're predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the good And that's holiness. The way Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 4, he speaks of Christ being formed in us. The way he talks about it in Galatians chapter 5, as he talks about the the fruit of the Spirit uh, growing in us. That's the very character of Christ in us. That's holiness. And God is saying, this suffering is my training that will enable you to share in my holiness. That's to comfort us. That's to say, okay, I realize that this is really important. I realize that this is really valuable. But but I know what you're thinking, if you're thinking with me. This is what I thought, at least. First thought comes to my mind was, all right, if this suffering is a sign of God's love to me, then don't love me so much. Right? Don't love me so much. And, And if this discipline is to create to train me to holiness, 80% fine, right? But of course, that's all wrong. And the author of Hebrews says, no, I, I want you to understand that holiness is that important. Holiness is that valuable. And I say, I don't have a category in my brain at this point in my lack of sanctification to see how my holiness is worth that tragedy. I can't make that call. Your earthly dad can't make that kind of call, right? The president of the United States can't make that kind of call. Your professor can't make that kind of call. Your doctor can't make that kind of call. Only God can make that kind of call. He's the only one who can be trusted to compare relative values and come up right every time. 
You see, the reason that we can say, you know, if that's what it takes, don't love me so much, it's only because we think deep down inside that if we were God, things would be much better. I mean, we think that, don't we? We think that if I were God, that never would have happened. I can't make that call. I shouldn't be trusted to make that call. I don't have the wisdom for that call. I don't have the love for that call. I don't have the power for that call. Only God can make that call. He says, I want to comfort you by letting you know that this suffering is for your training in holiness. And we know how that works. And we have a sense about how that works. We know that during times of suffering, our character is deeply tested. In fact, the author of uh, Paul puts it in Romans in chapter 5 like this. He says, more than that, we rejoice in our suffering. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? I mean, don't let that pass. Fill in the blank for every kind of suffering you can imagine. More than that, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. See, all of this produces character, which lets us know that we are being trained by it, which gives us hope that we really do belong to him, that he's our father. And we know how that works. We know that during suffering, our character is strained and tested. We know that our love is tested. Can we forgive those who are making us feel this pain? And can we forgive those who aren't helping us deal with this pain, who are coming to us and not helping us, saying all the wrong things? Our love is tested in the midst of suffering. Can we love? Can we forgive? Our joy and peace is tested in suffering. Can I live with this pilot light of contentment, knowing that God really is with me and really trustworthy? You know, quite frankly, on a day like today, I suspect, I shouldn't say this, but God willing, (laughs) given how I'm planning my afternoon, I'm going to be having joy and peace, essentially. I mean, you know, yesterday afternoon, no, I was writing this sermon yesterday, Friday afternoon, I was filled with joy and peace because it was just nice day, right? But on stressful days, where's joy and peace? Something inside me is telling me I'm not quite as holy today as I was yesterday. What's the difference? My circumstances are cluing me in on the fact of who I really am. See, oftentimes people come in in the middle of the day and they say something, we jump at them, we say, oh, it was the caffeine. No. (laughs) It was you. It wasn't the caffeine. It was you. That's who you are when people upset you like that. You lose joy and peace. Love, joy, peace, patience. We know how aggravating, how aggravated we get in the midst of suffering. Again, on a good day, when stress is low, we can handle a certain measure of aggravation, but when we're sick or when we're grieving or when things, we've lost our job or things are going horrible in a relationship, we know that it's very easy to snap at that point. He said, no, we should be patient there, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. When suffering happens, it's difficult to simply be kind. Goodness, when suffering happens, can we think the good in, uh, about others and not take offense? Can we, can we live with this good attitude in the context of this situation? Uh, can we live not jealous of those who aren't suffering, not envious of those who aren't suffering, not wanting to make everybody else suffer with us? Can we, can we live, can we be good in the midst of that? We realize how hard that is in the midst of, of suffering uh, and that kind of difficulty, faithfulness. Can we live faithful to God and faithful to each other in the midst of this suffering? Gentleness. Can we be gentle in the midst of suffering? We can be gentle on a good day when there's not a lot of stress, when nothing else is demanding our time. But can we keep from being harsh during a time when we're aggravated, during a time when we're suffering, during a time when we're in pain? That's the test of it. Self-control. Can we handle these Emotions and affections and the words that we say and how we say them and what we do in the midst of these times of suffering. How are we going to cope? So when suffering comes, it reveals, you see, 
our character really. And we have to lay that aside and trust in Him. Finally, this. And then two final questions at the end. Finally, this. God relates this suffering to Himself. He says it's His discipline. That's a hard concept for us. But God is no passive observer to our lives. God is no reactor to what takes place in our lives. God isn't sitting around watching and then when bad things happen to us, when suffering comes upon us, he then doesn't say, okay, I'll get to work and I'll make something good out of this. See, he isn't like that. He does make good out of stuff. But God's God. And however difficult the concept is for us to understand, nothing takes place without him ordaining it. Because he's God. That's who he is. He can stop anything. And so he has to ordain it or it won't happen. We wonder how that can be. You remember the story of Joseph, right? Joseph ranged in the Old Testament this young boy somewhere between naive and arrogant. He had some great dreams and then he had the audacity to tell his brothers and his parents that in those dreams they all sort of bowed down to him. Not wise to do. His brothers got angry, as you might suspect. They were going to kill him, but they decided simply to, to sell him into slavery, which they did, and convince their father that he was killed. Now, Joseph's life after being sold in slavery had its ups and downs. A huge down was when he was arrested and tried and convicted for sexual harassment of his boss's wife, thrown into prison, And there, he had opportunities to get out, but the people that he helped forgot about him. And he didn't get out until a couple of years after the fact. Think about that, two extra years in prison doesn't sound pleasant. Didn't get out until after the fact. But when he did, he interpreted the dream of the king in such a way that he became uh, in command, most especially of the famine relief effort in Egypt. And when he was head of the famine relief effort in Egypt, he was reunited with his brothers and his fathers because they needed food. And you remember Joseph's evaluation of the whole situation. He said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And you get a sense that behind that wasn't God just simply reacting to their evil. But somehow in the mystery of God, God was working through the decisions that his brothers wanted to make They follow their own inclinations, but yet that wasn't outside of God's ordination. That wasn't outside of God's purview. And God was saying, come on, I know, come on. I'm meaning good for this situation. This situation is going to happen. My intention is good. Same thing happened in the life of Jesus. Acts chapter 2. Peter's sermon, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, what was the source of the evil against Jesus, in a sense? What was the source of that hostility? Easily, we can say, it was sinful men. They were lawless people. Should they have crucified Jesus? Of course not. Not according to any morality, not in court of any justice. They shouldn't have crucified Jesus. But God had ordained that through them, his plan would be fulfilled. And it was. That's the way our lives are. Mysteriously, inexplicable. God is at work. God is a plan. God is ruling and reigning. And for his people, he's ruling and reigning in such a way that the exact wisdom of God is being played out in our lives. 
And God's love is being expressed to us through all the circumstances of life. And the author of Hebrews saying, I want you to know that. I know you don't see that, and I don't expect you to see that. That's why I wrote it down. If you had seen it, I wouldn't need to write it down, and we'd be all hunky-dory. But he's saying, I need to write this down. I need you to read this all the time. I need you to understand that this is what is happening, even though you don't see it, and even though it's not affecting you uh, like this at an emotional level on its face. I want you to know that God is ruling, and God is reigning, and that he is wise, and that he loves you, and the suffering that you're undergoing doesn't mean that God isn't ruling and reigning. doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. doesn't mean that God isn't wise. In fact, it means the exact opposite. Because God has ordained this in your life. He set this race before you. For you to run so that you'll endure the running. For the sake of discipline, notice verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure. Why do we keep running? So that... We can share in his holiness. That's why we keep running. So we can share in his holiness. We endure for the sake of discipline. So that we can be holy. That's how valuable it is. So what are we to do? What are we to do when the running gets hard? What do we do when suffering is great? Middle of verse 9. We subject ourselves, paraphrase, to God. That is, we just subject ourselves to Him. We lay ourselves out before Him. And we say, we belong to you. And and we're going to live through whatever it is that you bring. And we're going to trust you through whatever it is that you bring. And we're going to be trained in righteousness through whatever it is that you bring. You know, the great example to us, obviously, is... Jesus, right? He endured all he endured with joy. Why? Because he subjected himself to God. Now that doesn't mean he went to the cross chuckling all the way. I grew up with a number of camp hymns that were horrible. Talk about sort of chuckling all the way down or, you know, whatever, just bad lyrics. Jesus wasn't chuckling. He wasn't giddy. That's not this sense of joy. This sense of joy was this sense of resolve. This sense of joy was this sense of contentment. This sense of joy was this sense of trust in his heavenly Father because he knew the joy that was set before him. But remember that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember how he did it. Remember how he submitted himself to the Father. Remember how he laid himself out subject to the Father. He says, Father, if there's any way that this can pass from me, What a normal thing to say for someone who's in the midst of suffering. You know, if there's a person who's pointing a gun at me for the sake of Christ, my suspicion, I'm going to say, you know, God, if you can make that thing not work. Right? Well, that's a reasonable thing to say. Or if I'm about to lose my job, it's a reasonable thing to pray, God. I don't want to lose my job. Or if I'm facing a diagnosis, it's a reasonable thing to pray. Oh, God, please don't let it be. If I'm in the midst of a relationship that looks like it's breaking, it's it's not unreasonable to me to pray, Oh, God, please heal this. But then the next line is of such great importance. Jesus said, "But, but I subject myself to you. And my will, but your will. I'm willing... The sense of joy, whatever that means to you, I'm willing to keep running. And Jesus would say, I'm going to run, I'm going to get up from here, I'm going to run right into the, right into the hands of my accusers and arresters, if that's your will for me. I'm going to run from there to be tried, I'm going to run from there to be beaten, I'm going to run from there to the cross, because I trust you. And I trust you won't leave my soul to the grave but that you'll raise me to life. And notice how the author of Hebrews puts it. He says, Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? 
See, that's it. He says, listen, if you'll take this comfort, if you'll take this comfort that says, I know what it looks like to you, but I do love you. I know what it looks like to you, but I'm ruling and reigning. I know what it looks like to you, but I'm really wise. I know what it looks like to you, but, but running this race like this in the midst of this pain and suffering is of great value. And God would say, I'm the only one who can make that call, and I've made that call. So trust me and run and be trained in holiness. And that won't be easy. That's why I'm telling you this. It's a hard run. There's obstacles and hurdles. And you don't get to stop as long as you live. I want you to run this race. And I want you to trust me. May God comfort us with that. Let's pray, Father. God, I pray for me and for us that we won't demand any more account of yourself than what you give us in your word and that we would take this and live upon it, that it would feed our, our minds. And so, God, when we begin to think that you don't love us or to think that you're not wise or to think that in some way, shape, or form you don't... You, you're not ruling that, that, that we would we'd feed from this word and this would become what we see. This would become sight to us. We'd know this to be true. And Father, if ever we think it isn't worth it, if ever we think that the holiness that you're birthing and maturing in us isn't worth the suffering, I pray you remind us that it's for holiness that we endure. And that by faith, you will enable us to see the value of this holiness. So that we would be encouraged. And that we would lay aside every sin that's exposed. And that we would grow in holiness. That we might have hope. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before the benediction, before... I ask you to stand. Let me um, invite to come up some folks who have uh, uh, joined with us recently. Um, the names I have before me, I will read. And as I read your name, if you'll come up and just stand up here uh, in front of us. Um, and then I have some questions for you, and then we'll have the benediction. Uh, the response to the benediction is this, I am subject to God. Hallelujah. So when you say I'm subject to God, what you're saying is I understand he's sovereign, he loves me and all of that, and I'm, I'm his. And then, to say that makes me happy. Hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction, not to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, I'm subject to God. Hallelujah.